0: From
1: Kurtco Media. Hello, friends and fellow car lovers. Welcome to Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. A lot goes into the history of a car. Who designed it? Who made it? Where was it manufactured? And then there's everything that happens during the life of a car. Who drove it? What was it used for? What races did it win? How did it change the automotive landscape? Well, today we're going to talk about a remarkable car, one with some unusual origins, one with a few changes of fate, and one that will be preserved in the annals of American history. It's not an impressive vehicle on its own. It's a simple Volkswagen Type 2, a VW bus in the United States, a VW camper in the United Kingdom, and a Combi where it was made. Other places you might see it called a transporter or a microbus. But the reason why this car matters is a combination not just of its history and the people who created it, but most importantly, the people who owned it and the mission that it served. Today, we're going to be diving a bit more deeply into exactly how this car came to be and exactly why it was so important. Listeners may have noticed a similar thread through a few episodes released earlier this year. Brian Howard of B.R. Howard & Associates, an expert art conservation specialist, explained the distinction between conservation when compared to restoration. Brian happened to have worked on the conservation of the automobile in question. Just the
2: history. There was a piece that had served as such an important function in South Carolina.
1: Then we had Diane Parker as a guest, vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association, who discussed why the car was accepted into the National Historic Vehicle Register. The
0: 1966 Volkswagen Type 2 Deluxe St- station wagon
1: and finally russell hayes author of volkswagen beetles and buses smaller and smarter joined us recently to discuss the legacy of the world's most ubiquitous cars and during our conversation even he mentioned the vehicle in question
3: that bus is actually called the jenkins bus
1: the jenkins bus Clearly, there was an important story coming to light, and one that we wanted to take an extra bit of time to examine. So using some clips from those episodes, along with some additional interviews we've recorded since, we want to look at the history of this one average, yet truly exceptional automobile. Let's rewind the clock to just before World War II and uncover the origins of the Volkswagen Mark. Volkswagen Authority Russell Hayes, author of Volkswagen Beetles and Buses, explains.
3: The idea of a sort of German people's car had been around since the 1920s, and there was a real determined campaign that there should be an affordable, pardon my German pronunciation, Volksauto, which was car of the people, that people could actually afford. The pressure for that led to Ferdinand Porsche set up his own design consultancy in, I think, 1931 to start peddling around a design for a new type of Volksauto to various manufacturers. There were two motorcycle manufacturers that were interested and took him on to design prototypes, Zunda and NSU, who both wanted to move from motorcycles into small cars and he presented a design of a rear-engined car with a simple platform to both of them, but neither of them in the end had the money to go through with it. But all this incremental design work, testing and prototypes started to give him a more and more improved model. And of course, the person who came along and gave the greatest push to it was Adolf Hitler. Hitler was so determined that there should be a people's car to run on the new autobahns as a symbol of modern Germany and also as a vehicle for export that he pushed and pushed Porsche's design. But he really gave Porsche a really hard time trying to screw him down to the lowest possible production price. And Porsche, I think, was really under pressure to try and get this car manufactured at the lowest possible price. But what ended up benefiting the eventual design is that millions of miles were covered in development work. By the time the car was presented in its final form ready for production just before the outbreak of war, it was a very well-tested car already, possibly one of the biggest test programs that any car had ever had to that date. So when it came out after its cause for the war, it was already a very well-developed car and likely to be very reliable.
1: But Germany lost the war. Allies moved in and were tasked with the well-nigh impossible task of rebuilding the country they had just defeated. As different countries were given different responsibilities and geographic sectors in the recovery effort, Great Britain was given a difficult choice of what to do with car manufacturing and what would eventually become Volkswagen.
3: It could have possibly gone to a Ford of America, but Henry Ford came and visited, tried worn-out Volkswagen from the war years, and did think it could be a possible car for sale in Europe with a bit of refining, but backed off because it was too near the Russian border. But the British were sent in to assess what the factory could be turned to, and there was quite a contingent of them that wanted the factory just to be used as industrial units, not to go back to car manufacture. But Britain needed the German economy to get back into gear, and one of the ways of doing this was to help them reset up production of this car which was kind of ready to roll before the war and the factory wasn't as badly damaged so eventually it was put back into action but the british were certainly conflicted about what they were doing the very small team of people realized that they were potentially going to damage the british motor industry but that was their job to get this car running
1: so volkswagen was saved and the well-tested beetle more properly der kafer went into production However, the odd German vehicle proved a bit difficult for America to swallow.
3: By the time the Volkswagen arrived in the early 1950s, the idea of the small car in America had just completely gone. There'd been the Crosley just after the war, but as soon as people could afford bigger cars, they abandoned that. It got off to a slow start in the States. When it was first imported in the very early 50s, I think 50 or 51, the Dutch in Border bought one or two over, and they were just ridiculed. The press called it Hitler's car, and he touted it around to various dealers in terms of trying to get them to take it on they would Volkswagen initially had to retreat and rethink and then come back to America with a much more considered offering. What they did was they started getting all the dealers in place and the service in place and the parts in place so that you had this car, which wasn't the latest thing that you could get parts anywhere. They were cheap. It could be readily serviced, which is what a lot of the imported cars in the 1950s failed to grasp. They bought the cars in cheaply enough, but then there was no backup. But by getting this organization in place and this sort of service ethos and backup, which was so new, it started a really good foundation. And it did start to trade off the Porsche name a bit. It got a following amongst people, not who needed a cheap car. And that's what was interesting. It wasn't bought by people who needed a cheap car. It was bought by people who wanted an honest, Small, reliable second car. And it also, at that time, European things were starting to make their influence felt. People were traveling abroad again on European holidays, it traded on that kind of wave of interest in European things as well. And it became an anti-car in a way. It became, well, I could afford a big Packard, but I don't want one. I want this nice, modest little car because it's not going to be out of date when the model year changes. It's not going to look completely different. And my neighbor won't be able to tell whether I've got a 56 Beetle or a 58 Beetle.
1: The Volkswagen in America, long before car companies were thought of as brands, represented a lot of things. Precision, practicality, rugged durability. One Volkswagen that had a huge impact was the bus, the camper, the transporter, the deluxe station wagon, the big box on wheels, which really became a ubiquitous feature in America, especially during the
3: 1960s. The two cars went on parallel tracks. The bus took off in a different direction to the combi. In America, certainly, they really didn't know what to make of it when it came out at all because small vans did not look like this. And when they tried to sell the combi with seats and windows, people just couldn't work out what it was. One great story was apparently that when people started buying the combis and using them as station wagons, some parking lot attendants wouldn't park them because they said they didn't park trucks.
1: But that didn't deter sales.
3: The early camper vans really took off. They really was seen as something new, as a way of escaping and exploring this big country. And of course they could do it, because, albeit very slowly, but they could do it reliably. And the early campervan conversions were so ingenious, managing to squeeze all these little cabinets and wash basins and folding down beds into this tiny space.
1: And as a result, the VW bus took on a brand new reputation. It was
3: often used as transport for young people to go across continents. It was used by... People who were on UN humanitarian missions as well. Quite a lot in the 60s, people dispensing words of peace to people around the globe.
1: So VW survived World War II, thanks to the British, and their bus has come to America and taken root. But the next part of the story requires a bit of a change in scenery. We'll be right back on Cars That Matter.
4: Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind.
1: Welcome back to Cars That Matter, as we detail the unique history of the car that is now known as the Jenkins VW Bus. Our story shifts to post-World War II America, an America that is suffering from the racism and attitudes that flourished prior to, and sparked, the Civil Rights Movement. Esau and Janie B. Jenkins are living on Johns Island, South Carolina. In 1948, the couple founded the Progressive Club, that co-op offered their community financial assistance, legal aid, and education. The building housed a grocery store, gas station, and a community center. Esau and Janie B. worked tirelessly to help their community overcome the oppression of the Jim Crow era. Son of Esau and Janie B., Bill Jenkins, at 90 years of age, shares his family's history. You start back in 1948, and in 1948 is when we started the
5: Regressive Club, when a white man shot a black man over a doe. At that time, my daddy was hustling in the market in Charleston. And people came down and said, Sammy's shot, but he's not dead. And so they went to the hospital and they gave two quarts of blood. And that saved Sammy. And they tried to find a judge that will handle the case and a lawyer. The case never came up. And eventually, they got called a meeting at the Moving Star Hall. And at that same time, the Progressive Club, they formed the name, the Progressive Club, because it was people from all over the community said, so we had enough of this, people can shoot us like dogs. And so they started having have meetings at the Progressive Club until Mount School became vacant because they moved across the street, and that piece of property was for sale. And that is when my daddy started hot People from the islands, Jones Island and a part of Waterloo Island and North Jones Island, take people to the fertilizer plant in Charleston. And on that fertilizer plant, they had some latest on that plant that didn't have to be to work that early in the morning. So they stayed on the bus until about nine o'clock. So that's when Paul would start talking about why are we letting this happen to us? If we don't say anything, they're going to continue to have just like an elephant with a rope around neck. You won't even know his own strength. So when he found out that the people were listening to him,
1: then that's when we started talking about voter registration. The Progressive Club was where it all started. But the famous green bus that the Jenkins purchased in 1966 wasn't the first car to be of use to the Jenkins. Elaine Jenkins, youngest daughter of Esau and Janie B, explains with Bill.
4: There was a fleet of buses that our parents had before we get to the Volkswagen bus and those, Mm -hmm. yeah, And so those buses were used to transport people to and from work. The islands did not have a connecting bridge until the mid fifties. There was a ferry and the buses were used to transport Islanders into Charleston to work. The buses were also used because there was no high school on John's Island for African Americans. The black high school was in Charleston. So Ben Papa used the buses to transport the children who wanted to go to high school, including his own children, my brother here and my My two older sisters would ride in one of the buses or the truck into Charleston to go to school. And then a lot of the schools on the island would have excursions. And since my father had the buses, he would take the children on outings in the area. The beaches were segregated, but also. So the buses were used to transport people to two of the Black beaches in the area, Mosquito Beach and Atlantic Beach. Those were the two Black beaches. The buses did a lot of things. And as my brother said, my parents began organizing people on those buses during that time to talk about the conditions in which they were living on these islands. And one of them was the issue of voter registration and education. Here in South Carolina at the time, you had to be able to read a portion of the U.S. Constitution?
5: not think the U.S. or the state Constitution.
4: Or, and pay a poll tax. So what my parents did was they helped people to read that portion of the Constitution that they needed to know. I mean, they memorized it and how to write their names. That's the backdrop of these two Volkswagens now when we fast forward by the time Papa purchased the 1966 minibus most of the fleet of buses he had maybe one or two left
5: yeah but he started off with one he bought from the horse when it was a Chevy bus. Then he bought a 65 Chevy bus.
4: Right. You're talking about the fleet, the larger buses. Mm -hmm. But when we get to the Volkswagen bus, he only had one of those long buses left. And
5: that's when he should go around the community and try to talk to people and to let them know what being a citizen means. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't even know what a citizen was.
4: Mm -hmm. I think in 1966, the CEO Federal Credit Union was established. Mm-hmm. My father had gone the year earlier to a meeting in Washington D.C. He went there for one purpose, but then he heard about a community meeting that was being held, hearings that were being held on Capitol Hill, and he went there and he spoke about the fact that for African Americans in South Carolina, they had to buy expensive money. It was they had to go to
5: individuals,
4: individuals instead of banking institutions to borrow money, and they started for about a year. They discussed the responsibility of starting a SEAL federal credit union in Charleston. So once that credit union was up, then Papa Dan got the first the Volkswagen, um, bus. Volkswagen bus. Mm-hmm. And it had Co Federal Credit Union on it, on the side of it. The back hatch had love is progress, hate is Expenses. Expensive. So everybody knew this bus in Charleston County. Whenever they saw that bus in there, was, he saw Jenkins coming about something. But he loved that Volkswagen, that 66. And several years later, he bought a blue mm-hmm. Volkswagen personally, but it was that Volkswagen that was for the Citizens Committee that he went around, talked about voter registration, encouraging people to register and vote, and to join the SEAL Federal Credit Union. And he still took people around in that um, in the Volkswagen to, as well.
5: He even went to Atlanta after
1: Martin King got
5: killed and he took, took them group, around
1: to, right. uh, in that Volkswagen bus. As time went on, the bus became not only a member of the community around it, but of the Jenkins family itself.
5: Sometimes Papa will sleep here or something, and I just drive it. But he knew where he was going, so he would say, we're going to such and such a place. And I got to be there at such and such a time. And he just go and take a nap while I'm driving. But once he get there, he's full of pep. Stop talking, and he just said, come on, wake up. We've got a lot of things to do, and we don't have a whole lot of time to play around. He was staring at times, but he knew how to deal with people. I know he used to call all of these islands. In Charleston County, there were many islands. Five. Five of them.
4: Five Sea Islands.
5: Sea Island, but he used to go to Mont Pleasant Mm and some of those others, too. McClellanville and all of that. Mm -hmm. But they used to get people from each one of those islands that he could identify And then start talking to them and said, I want you to give me a report on how far you got and how could I help you. And he'll go from one island to the next island, especially in Charleston County. He started off with James Island because that was the largest island in population. John's Island was the largest island in uh, Erie. Eddie Shaw was the smallest island.
4: And the farthest away. And the
5: farthest away, the last part of going in, in Charleston County. And it had Young's Island. And all those islands, the furthest one from here was McClellanville. But that was not in Charleston County. It was in Charleston County, but not in the, the Sea Island. So he had key people in each one of these islands that he could call. And everybody used to joke after he died that as soon as I phone in the ring on Sunday morning, before church, somebody will get a call from my daddy and say that, I want you to do so. He never asked you. He tells you. I want you to go when you in Sunday school during the announcement period. I want you to say this, 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 this. We got to get our people to register and vote. And most of this was happening when you were driving the little bus. And this was 67, 68.
1: That little green bus became memorable not only for the family inside, but because of the writing on the body of the vehicle itself. Citizens Committee was painted in bright white letters on the side. And as Elaine and Bill mentioned earlier, on the tailgate was painted Love is Progress, hate is expensive.
5: It means that the racial tension in this area at that particular time was real high. I have figure if you would put something on the back talking about love and hate that may draw attention to a lot of people. Because they could most of my experience both love because there were a few White folks around here that probably could get some money from. And you know if you couldn't get the money from those people, you couldn't do anything at all. Because he couldn't go to the bank and get any money. Elaine mentioned it earlier. And hate means that they're going around as though you don't exist until they need something. And so if you go around just trying to hate them because they're treating you as though you're less than an adult, you're going to end up dying from hypertension or something. Because you got all that stuff building up in you. So he put on his love, his progress. If you can love them, I don't mean that you have to hate them. But you just make sure you know where you are. Because you don't want them to take advantage of you no more than they have done already.
4: I always thought it had a religious aspect as well as a very practical aspect of it. When we were growing up, for the people on the islands, religion was the way of life and it impacted everything, every area of life, really. And one of the greatest commandments is to love thy neighbor. The epistle of John talks about God is love. And then on the other hand, how hate destroys the human spirit. But then it was also something very practical, as I heard Papa say a lot of times, when you spend all that time trying to have two unequal things, I mean, you're wasting money, a white water fountain, a black water fountain, school for whites, a school for blacks, separate, definitely not equal, but you're spending money just to maintain that apartheid state, Right. Mm -hmm. And that once you open up to love, and not that sentimental kind of love, but the agape love that the Bible talks about, the love that you can have for a person who you perceive as an enemy, that you can then begin making progress.
1: But what made them keep the bus all these years? Mama.
4: Our mother
5: did.
1: Mama said, no, that's he saw out there.
4: It was Papa's bus. They had done a lot together with that bus. She said that she never wanted it sold. We were looking at restoring the Progressive Club after Hugo did a lot of damage to it in 1989. And maybe finding funds to renovate the Progressive Club itself, the building. So we were looking at some point, perhaps starting a museum there and putting the bus there. But that never happened. It just took longer than we anticipated. And when the Smithsonian came to us, they had heard about Esau Jenkins and that the bus was in the backyard. We thought it was a godsend. We saw the bus deteriorating. Mama asked us never to sell the bus and we didn't know how to preserve the bus. So when they came, we thought here is something that we really can do to honor our mother's wishes. And they took the hatch back of the bus.
5: I felt like my mother's prayer was coming to be because she had won some way that we could preserve that bus. We didn't know how and when. And when we got the chance to talk to some of the people from the museum first, And we got the local people to start the historic sites, and Progressive Club was one of those historic sites. Then we know we were on the right track to attract more people to learn about the bus.
1: And from that point on, then it was all going uphill. The tailgate is currently on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. But the question still remained about what was going to happen to the rest of the Jenkins bus. We'll be right back on Cars That Matter.
0: A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm read a like magic extended from her
5: fingertips down to the you
0: base of my spine. You have to take
2: of care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Just
0: your me. voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Like
1: fingers were facing
0: me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is
1: really being it questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano.
0: She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second. I Cats don't
2: love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty are... of rock climbing is that you can only focus on
4: what's right in life. And so our American life begins.
0: We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
1: Welcome back to Cars That Matter. For decades, the Jenkins bus had been sitting in the Jenkins' backyard. The tailgate, painted with a slogan, love is progress, hate is expensive, had just been taken to the Smithsonian. But then some new characters enter our story. First, Diane Barker, vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association.
0: We got a call from Barry Steeple and Grant Gilmore from the College of Charleston, and they said, we Know what you're doing, and we think it's great. And we have a wonderful local story that we believe should be preserved. And so they put us in touch with Eldrina Jones from the family. And from there, we went down and met with the family and took a look at the bus. College of Charleston met us out there. It was a young man that wrote a paper on it, as a matter of fact, from the college. And that's how we were introduced to this wonderful story.
1: And what makes the Historic Vehicle Association so important?
0: I would say, first of all, our why, why we are here, why we are the HVA is because we believe that America's automotive heritage is worth saving, that the stories are worth telling, and the human interest aspect of it is worth bringing forward to people. And it's not just about car guys and car girls. This is for everyone, because you may not be a car person, but everyone loves a really great story. And that's what we're doing here is we're saving history and we're telling some really great stories. We are connected through the Department of Interior's Historic American Engineering Record, who then is connected to the Library of Congress. And that is through our programming, which is the National Historic Vehicle Register. It can be complicated. So to simplify everything is we're filling a gap in our history. We have over 80,000 buildings, covered bridges, aircraft, and other objects that have been covered as part of our cultural past. But the vehicle had never been included until the HVA came along and started filling that gap in 2014. Now, we were created in 2009, so we don't want to get listeners confused. Initially, when the HVA was created, it was more of a legislative watch, kind of this overall what was going on. And then we discovered that there was this huge gap in our history and our cultural heritage, and we thought no one else is doing it. So we're going to fill this one car at a time. So we did an agreement with the Department of Interior. Suddenly, we are filling this long gap that has never been filled. People are really astonished when they find out, what do you mean cars have never been a part of our documented heritage? They've been a part of our lives for hundreds of years. It's one of the greatest technological advancements and will continue to be, and it was never covered. It is the human interest story behind the horsepower, and that's what makes this bus so incredibly significant. Esau met with People like Martin Luther King, leaders like that. Martin Luther King actually consulted, wanted to know what are you doing that's working? You're kind of getting people behind this movement, and that's because Esau Jenkins was working with the people, and he was working up, where Martin Luther King was kind of working from the top down. It's where these leaders came together. So this little bus rested in the backyard of the Jenkins home. It survived many a storm, where buildings and homes. Eclipsed including the Progressive Club, where Esau Jenkins had many of his meetings, didn't last. This little tiny bus lasted until we came along and we took it out so that we could share the story. This bus was almost up to the axles it was sunk into the backyard. We brought in some talent from the NB Center for American Automotive Heritage, and they helped us stabilize the bus so that it could actually be moved because we didn't want the roof caving in naturally because we had to get it from South Carolina to our lab in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And once we got it there, then we called B.R. Howard in to take a look and see what needed to be done because the family does not want this to be restored. They want it to be preserved. B.R. Howard did a spectacular job. They brought out some things underneath the finishes and the paint once they got the dirt off where you could see just a little bit of lettering about the community on the side. This was the only project to date where we have actually been involved and got other qualified subject matter experts involved to stabilize, preserve, and conserve the automobile. And boy, are we glad that we did. It's a spectacular story.
1: The HVA contacted B.R. Howard & Associates, a company that specializes in the conservation of priceless art and artifacts. Think of the carriage that took Lincoln to Ford Theater on the night of his assassination. Brothers Braden and Colin Howard were the two experts who spent the most time working on the bus.
2: We were actually doing work down at the National Museum of the United States Army. The museum was still being constructed, and we were working on a lot of macro-sized military vehicles and Casey Maxson from the Historic Vehicle Association. I believe he sent me a text telling me he would send an email and he sent a whole bunch of photos of the bus and saying, please give him a call when we had a chance. So Casey's such an enthusiastic guy, as well as Diane Parker over there. So we were excited to see what this bus was and get a little bit more information on the history and what they were looking for from us in terms of worker consulting.
6: Seeing the vehicle for the first time was more along the lines of like an archeological relic that had literally just been dug out of the ground. Everything was rotten on it and there was no solid metal to be found. The roof was collapsing. There was biological growth and lichens all over the vehicle. It truly was a quite scary thing to look at as far as something we might be working on.
2: Our primary concern was just handling it and moving it because of the paint. The paint was so oxidized and friable and then there were areas that were flaking. We weren't sure exactly how we were going to remove the biological growth without in some way disturbing the paint, whether that is kind of leaving finger marks on the oxidizer where they almost are burnished or if areas would flake. So our first problem was to find a way to remove safely the biological growth without impacting or changing the way that old paint looked on the vehicle. And we ended up kind of having to think outside the box. We kind of developed this misting system which is typically used in conservation of historic either sculpture or building facades. They will put it up even several stories high and they will put a very gentle misting system on the building so that marbling stone where it becomes powdery, they can't pressure wash it, they can't scrub it because it will continue to deteriorate masonry. They'll put these very gentle misting systems on. And that's what we did with the bus. We set up scaffolding. We made a climate controlled room where there was air movement and large dehumidifiers. And then we put articulating misting arms, we created kind of a piping system where these misters could be articulated and projected onto the bus, and we programmed it to come on for a few minutes then to go back off. It was all environmentally safe product that was used to kill the biological growth, and we also introduced amines, which would not cause additional corrosion to the bus. So that was the first stage which removed the biological growth very slowly, and then we saw just the stained rust coming through onto the paint and we used gel chelators, which removed the iron iron staining, but left for the paint untouched. So we didn't have to physically wash it or scrub it or handle or touch the paint in any way. Professionally, it was a challenge. It really had us think outside the box using approaches that would be typically applied to buildings used for an automobile. But from a historical perspective, I hadn't even heard of Esau Jenkins and Janie B. Jenkins. You go to school and you hear of civil rights leaders and figures and you learn about Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela. But I hadn't heard more localized stories of people like the Jenkins making an impact on the community. It was like peeling back an onion and realizing there's So many more things happening in these movements than just the big names that you hear and read about. I was really scared to take
6: on the project being in the circumstances that the bus was in, but then to be able to send it out the doors, really with it looking wonderful and being, it was safe. The bus was stable now to a point where it could be shown and the people could enjoy it now. Like Braden said, historically, we got to learn how other people, they sacrificed. These people sacrificed and worked really hard hard. And I think that's something that we're losing now. So I think that's a good life lesson that can be taught. Personally, it was touching to see the family. To be able to work on Thomas Edison's car is cool. And to sit on a chair that Abraham Lincoln sat on is cool. But we don't ever get to interact with the families of these objects. That was something that was different. We got to actually interact with family members, and that brought the object to life in a whole different light.
1: The vehicles that are inducted into the National Historic Vehicle Register by HVA each year are displayed at an event on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. called Cars at the Capitol. The cars are placed in beautiful glass display cases with informational signs that explain the importance of each car. Braden and Colin actually had the opportunity to travel to the Capitol to see the end result of their work.
2: It was a very surreal experience because you had this relic of a bus in this state-of-the-art glass sort of vitrine on the mall. And if you viewed it from the east, you had the U.S. Capitol behind it. And if you viewed it from the west, you had the Washington Monument. There was just all the modern cars driving by on the streets and construction and cranes building. So time is moving on as you have this still relic sitting in the mall and the people walking through the mall, you know, everybody's busy. So they're looking at their iPhones, but all of a sudden they kind of catch a glimpse and it just stops them in their tracks. The iPhones went back into their pockets. People wanted to see what this was. It just caught their attention and they just stood there and appreciated it for what it was. And just to see the family's reaction all coming together, traveling back to the mall to see this thing and reminisce about playing in the bus as children, wiping tears and seeing them laugh. It was a really wonderful experience.
1: So what happens to the car now?
0: Right now, it's at the Peterson Museum. It will eventually come back to the family. So the family is very involved in building an African-American museum in Charleston, South Carolina. They're also trying to rebuild the Progressive Club. And so eventually, the Jenkins bus will go back home. Until then, we have a place for it in our very safe and temperature-controlled lab in Allentown, and it's our pleasure to help the family in that way. We've become very close to all the members of the family, which often happens with us because we spend a tremendous amount of time with the stewards or the families of these vehicles in order to do the research and these families they share so much of their lives with us they will pull out the photographs and old films and they'll sit down with us and tell us stories and consequently we become extremely close to the people i have long lasting family within the community here and it's a very very special part of the job that we do and that really speaks to these human interest stories it's more than just the car
2: the jenkins were very passionate people. They were very involved in society. So I think that the story of them and the bus should encourage people to get involved in the things that they're passionate about. And they don't need to be a big player to make an impact in their community and that everybody has something that they contribute positively towards impacting other people.
1: But the Jenkins hope that what we learn from this car goes even deeper than that.
5: No, when you see, look at this bus, you see that other person... Who had owned this bus love everybody. Hate, he saw it as a thing that may hurt you more than it hurt the person you're trying to hate. And when you put the two together, you just try to make sure that everyone can live together, be happy, live a long life, and enjoy it while you live
4: I heard former Ambassador Andrew Young say when he came to this area, I don't know how many years ago, but it was the dedication of one of the health clinics on Young's Island. That was um, being dedicated in memory of our father. But what Ambassador Young said was that the civil rights movement started on this little unknown island in a little Methodist church by an unknown gentleman named Esau Jenkins. What my parents did, they didn't do for recognition. They saw a need and they tried to meet that need. And because I think basically we are an African people and you find your identity in community rather than individual. And I think that bus says that we all have a role to play. Mm -hmm. No matter who you are, where you are, find that niche, find that place where you can make this world a better place and what you found. That's what my parents really tried to do. And then that's what they instilled in us. I didn't send you to school just so you can be about yourself. You have to come back. And they told each one of that. You've got to give back to the community because the community has given you so much. You've got to give back to the community, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have a role to play. And it's the thing that my siblings tell their children and their children tell their children. It's just how we are, I mean, and, and how the community is. You can't leave without trying to make a contribution to make this world better.
1: From the origins under the Nazi rise to power, to the hard decision by the British to keep the VW mark alive, to the rebirth as a symbol of peace and freedom. From the hands of a close-knit family in South Carolina fighting back against racial hatred, through a complicated conservation program to preserve its own history, and finally, to an honored place in the records of America's Library of Congress. No one could have guessed the importance that one unassuming car could have. So what are you doing with your car right now? Because remember this, you can make a car matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter written by chris porter edited by chris porter theme song by celeste and eric dick additional music and sound by chris porter please like subscribe and share this podcast i'm robert ross thanks for listening
0: kurt co media
4: media for your mind